It's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week. That's right. We are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week. So we're going to be featuring expert insights, practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals. From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you. Shame really can grow. Like the perfect kind of petri dish for shame is to leave it in the dark, to not talk about it, to not show it to anybody, you know, not share it. And that is where shame just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the antidote to shame is really reaching out. If we reach out and share with even one person a situation that happened or the spiral that you're going down in your, in your own head, talking to someone, bringing, bringing the shame to light really squelches the shame from growing. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am once again joined by the amazing Megan Davidson of Love Warrior Healing. Megan is a licensed psychologist, a certified Daring Way facilitator, and a certified yoga teacher. Additionally, Megan has been a faculty member at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the Counseling Psychology Program for the past 13 years. Having provided counseling, therapy, and coaching to individuals, couples, and groups for over 15 years, Megan has honed her expertise in the areas of women's health, body image, trauma, relationships, vulnerability, authenticity, and self-compassion. She is trained with Brené Brown and has developed expertise in trauma-informed yoga. Bridging the domains of psychology and yoga, Megan works with her clients in a holistic manner, utilizing aspects of mind, body, and spirit to assist individuals enhance their emotional, psychological, and physical health so that they may live their best life. So as I mentioned, this is Megan's second appearance on Wisdom for Wellbeing, and if you haven't already listened to our first episode, which was episode number five, Journeying Through a Dark Night of the Soul to Become a Hashtag Love Warrior, definitely go back and check that episode out as well. In today's episode, Megan's sharing about the wisdom of the Daring Way approach, an intervention developed by Brené Brown to help build courage, shame resilience, and uncover the power of your vulnerability. Megan will talk you through understanding your own shame triggers and developing shame resilience so that you can move into the space of cultivating connection and showing up authentically. 
I really love this conversation as it's so rawly connecting and it highlights how we do all experience shame. And Megan is absolutely brilliant in giving you tools to take action and move through this state of isolation and disconnect in your life. I had actually planned to offer a masterclass on mindful self-compassion this week, and some of you might have caught the Facebook Live around that. However, I've decided that this is actually the perfect episode to introduce self-compassion, which you'll hear about in today's episode, if not in that language so formally, and I think it really sets the tone for the masterclass that I will offer next week. I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end, but without further ado, here's Megan. Megan, and thank you for being on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast again. I um, I know from our first conversation that I am absolutely delighted and excited to get this opportunity to chat with you and share with you again. I'm so thrilled to be back. Thank you so much for having me the first time and to be repeating the second time on your awesome new podcast. So thank you, Caitlin, for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And what we're going to be talking about in this episode is the daring way. So would you mind just describing what The Daring Way is for listeners who may not have heard of Brené Brown and this amazing approach that that you offer, that you facilitate? Yes, I can. So Brene Brown, um, for those of you not familiar with her work, is a social worker who is based out of Houston, Texas, here in the States. And she um, is a qualitative researcher. And so what that means is she really captures um, the stories of many, many, many people and then um, scientifically analyzes them to pull out themes um, and commonalities among all the stories that people share with her. And her main areas of research have been in, she started with connection and really wanted to understand what connection was. And through her work in exploring connection, she really came to some other pieces of authenticity, shame, and vulnerability. And those are three really core pieces of her work that, that she has found from her qualitative research and in working and talking with people for decades now that we can't really have true connection and meaningful connection if we aren't vulnerable, um, if we aren't uh, vulnerable enough to be our authentic and true selves. And a lot of stepping into our authenticity and vulnerability has to do with dealing with shame that we might have, shame that can come from all sorts of triggers um, and places in our lives, but that shame is a common emotion, that all of us feel shame. We might, are, we might have different triggers and different content that pulls that shame from us, but it is um, an emotion that we all experience just like we all experience joy or happiness or fear or sadness at some time or another that she's really brought to light that what was, I think, very taboo to talk about this idea and feeling of shame. She's really brought that to the surface of helping us recognize shame and then having a way to build shame resilience. And so The Daring Way is um, her... Renee, through Renee's work, really developing, it can be like an eight-week, a group program, or it can be infused in one-on-one therapy sessions with people. But The Daring Way is really looking at helping people identify what may be their shame triggers, um, what are the things that make them feel that sense of unworthiness, that not good enough, 
that something's wrong with me feeling that I think has become epidemic in our culture. Um, so really looking at what, what, where, where did those ideas of unworthiness and not enoughness come from? And then working through kind of different um, approaches through her program that she's developed to really build shame resilience, to step into that vulnerability, to step into authenticity so that we have tools and strategies to deal with shame when it comes up. Because the truth is, as long as we're living human beings that being triggered to feel that that wash over us of that we're not good enough or feeling that shame those triggers aren't going to go away but what can change is the way that we recognize when we feel that way and what we do how we respond when we have those feelings come over us and so the daring way is her program with that 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 sounds amazing because I think this emotion of shame, as you said, while it is something that's universal, that we all experience from time to time, our cultural context has not mm-hmm. allowed us to be open, to be honest, to be connecting in these moments of shame. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if we were going to look at shame, how, how would you describe that emotion? What, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So Brene talks a lot about, um, there are four different emotions that are similar and related, but that are very distinct from one another. And so those are shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And so those four, like I said, have, have some ways that they might feel a bit similar. And I think most people would conflate or confuse um, shame and guilt, that many people use those two words interchangeably. And she really has helped, along with some other researchers, of really um, disentangling them. So guilt, what guilt is, is when we've made a mistake, when we've messed up something, when we feel like we didn't do a good job. And guilt is feeling like, oh, I messed up. It's a very external feeling. So guilt is, oh, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Shame is the same situation, the same mistake could have happened, but the way that you feel about it is that you are bad, that you are the screw up. It's not that you made a mistake, but that you are a mistake. So those are very qualitatively different things. So guilt being very externalized, oh, I screwed up, I made a mistake, that is associated with being able to fix the mistake. That is associated with, in the research, all positive um, psychological well-being, ways that it's associated with forgiveness, with more self-compassion, with more um, uh, positive ways of looking at the self. Whereas shame, it's not that you made a mistake, it's you are the mistake. It's that you're unworthy, that you are bad. You didn't do something bad, but you are bad. And shame is associated with all negative psychological correlates. So associated with depression, with anxiety, with substance use, with um, higher rates of suicidal thinking, um, negative coping skills, risky behavior. So, so if you're going to um, think about shame and guilt, those are, that's the key difference. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And then the other two humiliation and embarrassment. Humiliation is someone could say something terrible to you. Like an example that Brene often uses is a kid in class, a teacher 
you know, is standing at the top of the classroom and holding up a paper that doesn't have a name on it. It's like, who didn't put their name on their paper? Who didn't do that? And it, oh, it's Janie. Janie always forgets to put her name on the paper. Um, and Janie feels bad about it, but she also has a sense of knowing that the teacher wasn't right to call her out like that. And so she can feel humiliated. That's what humiliation is. She knows that she feels bad in the moment, but she knows she didn't deserve it. She doesn't have that interpretation that she is bad, um, but more that the teacher did something that she shouldn't have done to m- try to make her feel poorly. And then embarrassment is the thing that we can all relate to. It's often, you know, in the moment, it's kind of like this horrifying feeling, but often becomes funny quite quickly after, you know, we've got toilet paper trailing on our shoe once we leave the washroom <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, so we can relate to that. But really the, the core distinction is in shame and guilt. That's really interesting. So with guilt, it's mm-hmm. that we might have done something bad, but we are not innately bad in and of ourselves versus the mm-hmm. shame we have that experience. And with the, I guess, trigger of, for instance, the teacher humiliating or, you know, a person experiencing the emotion of humiliation, given what mm-hmm. was happening with that teacher in that moment, they did not go to an emotion of shame, which might have been the difference. So humiliation was being able to say, I feel really bad right now, but recognizing mm-hmm. that that teacher was not right in the way they might have called out that student, they might have called that person out, versus mm-hmm. could a person have experienced shame in that same moment rather than Absolutely. humiliation? Or, yeah, okay. Absolutely. So that same experience could trigger shame in someone else to like Janie could have felt like she is bad. Like the teacher's right. She always forgets. She's a sloppy student. You know, she's, she's bad. Something's wrong with her. She's a screw up. She's unworthy. She could experience that certainly a shame where Janie having maybe a different way, a different set of skills that maybe she's developed or her parents helped her with or things like that could recognize, Oh, that feels terrible. But that teacher did not deserve, you know, she, I did not deserve this. That teacher really shouldn't have talked with me that way or called me out like that in front of the class. Um, Brene also has talked about that if, if we experience humiliation, like Janie, if she had in this example, the little girl in school, if she experiences humiliation, she's far more likely to go home at the end of the day and tell her parents what happened. Mm -hmm because she knows that even though maybe she made a mistake that the teacher was overstepping how she treated Janie. If Janie experiences that, that, that same experience with the teacher as shame, she's probably never going to bring that up and tell her parents because she feels like much more isolative. Yes. Yes. So shame is a very isolating experience. And one of the biggest tools in shame resilience, the very first step after recognizing the triggers is to call out for help, is to, to reach out to someone else. And so you're not in that isolating experience. We just quickly talk about recognizing the triggers because mm-hmm. I gather that what induces shame in each of us is going to be different depending on our beliefs about ourselves, our histories. How do we unpack that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in, um, in Brene's research, she's identified 12 common shame triggers, which doesn't mean that we, all, we each have all 12 of them or that we even have any of them. Maybe we have shame triggers from something else. But some of the common ones include um, any type of trauma, um, any type of um, 
addictive behaviors or addiction, and that could be within the person or within their family or a partner. Body image and how we feel about our bodies is a big shame trigger. Money is a big shame trigger. Um, many of us have um, been raised in families and cultures that, you know, money can be, no pun intended, but quite loaded, can bring a lot of baggage <laughs> of, how, of how we feel about money. Um, yeah. Religion can often be a trigger for people depending on their faith community and, um, and the messages they may have received in their, in their church or their faith community. Um, some of the others are um, sex can be quite triggering. Um, dealing with any type of mental illness can be a shame trigger. Um, in the list, there's a few others on that list. And so, okay. so those are, are some to get your head around to think, as I say, those like, Ooh, I definitely have some of that. Or, um, I think a lot of women have shame around their body and their body image. Unfortunately, um, I use that one as we're two women talking to each other. We also yeah, super are, common, in, isn't it? Are, are in the yoga world. And I think yeah. that, um, there can, that can be, an environment that can breed competition and yeah. comparison and well, bring you often up. hear about this yoga body, which I think is not a helpful um, image because it does prevent a lot of people who might benefit from the practice of yoga from entering it because there's perception around what you have to look like to be able right. to do a practice of yoga, which absolutely is probably its own conversation. That's its own conversation, right? Yeah, not only what you, what, what your body is supposed to look like, but what are the kinds of clothes you're supposed to be wearing and yeah, how old are you supposed to be and what color is your skin? Like so many different things that can come up about that. That can be very shame triggering. Um, okay. So there's work to be done for an individual who might be listening right now around figuring out what your shame triggers are, because mm -hmm. having that knowledge is going to allow you to then step into the next stage of working to cultivate shame resilience. So what right. is that? How does right. shame resilience work? Because yeah. that sounds incredibly useful. Yes. So shame resilience, there are a number of different steps. I mean, one of them is noticing and becoming aware of what your shame triggers are. And one way to do that is having some body awareness can be one helpful tool to recognize when you're feeling shame. So people might feel um, a pit in their stomach. They might feel flush in their face. They might feel like their um, throat constricts and that they have a very tight throat or might be hard to breathe. Um, might feel their heart rate increase. They might feel like they're heating up, you know, that flush is happening. And so those are some common ways, not all the ways, but some ways that your body might respond to when you're feeling shame. Um, you might also have, you know, some mental stories that come up and that you can have some mindfulness and recognize, you know, if you start going into self-criticism, let's say if it's about like the body shame thing, you might start to recognize you're telling yourself a story about your body and that those you're using shaming words and critical words. And maybe you also had someone in your life who shamed your body where that's connecting to. So there might be some also cognitive processes to use to recognize those shame triggers. Okay. Um, so one, the first step is definitely recognizing the shame triggers. Another step is realizing, okay, what is it that you do when you feel shame? So three common, there are three common reactions or responses to when we feel shame. And so one of those is kind of coming, uh, they call it moving against. And so 
kind of moving against the trigger. And that's sort of like fighting fire with fire. Like if someone comes at you or someone says something mean that you kind of come out fighting. And so coming out, it's like strong defensive system that's going to kind of fight that um, trigger, whether that's an internal battle with yourself or someone else that you're dealing with or a situation. Yeah. One is called, uh, so that's moving against. One is moving toward. And that's really when we get into that people-pleasing mode. And so kind of trying to like uh, smooth over a situation. Maybe this happens sometimes. um, How we respond to shame is different with the person or the situation. So maybe if it's something at work, you feel shamed at work somehow. Maybe you get very people-pleasing towards your boss. You try to smooth everything over. You try to make things, you know, how can I make the situation better? How can I make her or him happy? And really people-please. And then the third way is really to uh, what we would call moving away. And that's really is to isolate. And that's just moving out of the situation, maybe even moving out of yourself if it's, if it's like that body image thing, kind of pulling out from yourself, disconnecting with yourself or disconnecting with another person or whatever that might be, but really moving away and just pulling away and isolating. So those are three common ways that we respond to shame. And we might use those responses in different ways with different triggers. So maybe how one person might respond about maybe body shame, they might use a different response if they were shamed about an addiction that they had or an addiction a partner had, you know? So let's say, you know, let's, if I were the example, let's say I have shame triggers around my body and I have shame triggers around my partner is not an addict, but just hypothetically speaking, (laughs) if if we were, you know, maybe things when I feel shamed about my body, I might isolate and really like pull away. But if someone were to shame me or bring up something about my partner and about addiction, I might come out fighting and be really defensive and angry. And so just to kind of highlight, like we don't necessarily have one way of responding to shame. It may look different across the shame triggers or across the situation. That's, I think, a really important point so that we can respond differently. So we can't necessarily say, oh, well, I respond this way in this situation. Therefore, this is the coping mechanism I always Mm -hmm. go to. And I guess just to flush it out a little bit more, because I think that example of Janie in school with the teacher, um, you know, noticing, I should, noticing Mm -hmm. is a very gentle way of putting it, um, calling her out for not having wrote her name on the report in a really intense manner and in Mm a way in front of the class that she experienced this humiliation. Should she have experienced it as shame, given her Mm -hmm. own history and what was going on for her, the moving against might've been her lashing out at the teacher, like telling the teacher, you know, this is not okay. Like, how dare you, you know, it's your fault kind of moving into an attack mode. Yep. Exactly. And then moving towards might've been, yes, you're right. Like, yeah, I messed up again. Oh, I can't do anything right. I'm such a failure moving into that vernacular. Yeah. Kind of like wanting to make the teacher like her again. More okay. of like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. Is there anything I can do to make it up to you? Here's an apple. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's so that, really that's the people pleasing one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So then the moving away might be that curling up, pulling the hoodie over, kind of trying to to vanish, so to speak. And as you said, then not going home and telling mom and dad about it because it is so isolative. 
Absolutely. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Those are the three ways. And any of those could be available at any time, you know, and so um, to her, you know, and so recognizing for yourself, if you were in Janie's, like if you want to put yourself in Janie's situation and think, huh, what would I have done? Or can you remember back to when you were in school and what you might have done? And that might give you some insight as to what, what one of your responses might be given that particular situation. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really a good takeaway that we can reflect and try and think of what we would have done yeah. historically and then yeah. think of as you gave the work examples, for instance, now or the relationship mm-hmm. examples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are the two steps towards developing shame resilience is noticing our triggers and then noticing how we, how we actually respond. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the third step is really um, reaching out. And so that's the part where... Um, shame really can grow like the perfect kind of petri dish for shame is to leave it in the dark to not talk about it to not show it to anybody you know not share it and that is where shame just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and the antidote to shame is really reaching out if we reach out and share with even one person a situation that happened or the spiral that you're going down in your in your own head talking to someone, bringing, bringing the shame to light really squelches the shame from growing. Because, you know, sometimes I think we have this mindset that like, oh my gosh, if we say something out loud, it, it will make it true. And I think that that's such a misnomer. I think that like, when we say something out loud, then we can look at it. We can, we can do something with it. You know, it's kind of like accepting what is, and then we can move to a different place. And so really that third step is with a shame resilience is reaching out. And so calling someone, telling someone about this bad situation that happened or telling somebody, oh my gosh, I'm so in my head about my body again. I went to yoga or I went, did whatever. I saw my mom, she made some nasty comment and I'm just all in my head of like not being good enough and not having the right body and not being, you know, I'm too fat, I'm too this, my boobs aren't big, whatever the list is, you know, and sharing that with someone else and who, who can hear our story. You know, and so it's really pulling out of being in isolation and talking with someone who is a trusted and loved friend or family member or your therapist, you know, someone in your life who you know that you can trust and who also deserves the right to hear your story is a big piece of reaching out. You don't want to reach out to someone who hasn't had a good track record with you of being able to show up. That's a really um, interesting so. point. So being mindful of who you reach out to, that it's someone who's trusted and loved. And I really like the way you phrase it, deserves to hear your story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we might have many people in our lives, but not everyone deserves our total vulnerability and authenticity, especially at a time where we might be struggling or feeling um, like we're in a dark place and needing someone to kind of help us bring ourselves out into the light. And so really wanting to make sure that we're careful with who we reach out to, that we definitely want to reach out, but make sure it's someone that has earned the right and earned your trust to hear and be with you in that space. So you mentioned how this then shines light into what is a very dark place. I imagine it's the sharing it, the articulating it forms Mm -hmm. this connection with a trusted individual. Is it also part of the the healing that someone might 
might check sort of our experience in the sense to say, oh, like, that's okay that you feel this, or, you know, I've experienced this too, or what sort of function does this sharing serve? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, from Brene's research and other people's research that, you know, as human beings, that we are wired for connection, that at our core, we are not um, solo animals roaming this earth that we really are pack animals you know can think of ourselves as like dogs or wolves that we really um, survive and thrive better in community and in connection and so part of that um, in the reaching out and speaking shame is real is about connection and is about not being alone and developing that community and knowing that we have people that we can rely on and so Um, It is, I think, a twofold process, Caitlin, as you bring up of like, it isn't just the reaching out and speaking shame, but also having that connection and and that feeling that we're not alone in the struggle, that we all are in the struggle together. Which that you mentioned vulnerability as being Mm -hmm. something that's huge. I don't know if I'm diverging too far off course moving now from sort of the how we cultivate shame resilience is this reaching out. And is this where vulnerability comes in that it takes this degree of vulnerability to share our shame? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's nothing more vulnerable than maybe picking up the phone or calling someone and saying, I'm having a really hard time or I'm in a dark space or I'm telling myself these negative stories or this person did this to me or whatever it might be. I think that takes incredible vulnerability. And I also want to highlight that many of us were raised or socialized to believe that vulnerability is a weakness. And I'm definitely here to tell you that vulnerability is our greatest strength, that um, the power to reach out is a courageous move, the power to speak our truth and to be authentically who we are in the moment, to be vulnerable, to take the game face off, to just be exactly who we are in any given moment is the bravest and most courageous thing that we could do and takes enormous strength. And so I just want listeners to know and to hear that vulnerability is the farthest thing from weakness. It is just demonstrating the strength that you have within within you at all times. Um, and even though it can be scary, it doesn't mean that it's not scary. It's, it's definitely scary and can feel risky and, and bring up some fear, but it is, it is the thing that connects us. Um, Brene often talks about like, oh my gosh, like when you meet a new person and you're making a new connection, like the first thing we look for in that other person is some vulnerability. Like we kind of are checking in to see like, are they going to share something real with us? And to be authentic means to be vulnerable. And so she talks about how it's the first thing we look for in other people, but it's the last thing we want to share with other people. Isn't that interesting that it's Mm -hmm. something we would love to be privileged because you did mention, you know, that when we share with someone, it's someone who's deserving. So we all Mm want to, you know, find this opportunity to connect in this privilege of holding that space for someone, but that it's very difficult for us to let our guard down, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Because I think we, we have these ideas of we have to be perfect and we have to show we've got it all together and we're just fine. And that, we're, that it's not going to be okay or accepted if we're like, yeah, I have X, Y, and Z together, but A, B, and C are kind of a mess right now. You know? Okay, but so it pairs with perfectionism in some ways. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So vulnerability and authenticity cannot live next to perfection, right? So if we're striving, you know, perfectionism and perfection are unattainable. Like 
that's it's not possible like but the more we strive for that, those perfectionistic tendencies and looking to be perfect at whatever it is whether it's or an athlete or something in our career or in school or whatever it might be we're never going to attain that and if we're striving to be this thing that's unattainable how can that be authentic yeah, right. and would you mind? Like just, this is a great segue into what what authenticity right. is because it sounds like it's in in contrast to perfection. To be authentic is is a different experience and requires a degree of vulnerability. But what exactly is authenticity? What does it yeah. mean? It's a great question. I mean, I think there's probably many definitions for the word out there. Um, I think that authenticity is is can you stand in the truth of who you are? in any given moment that can you not try to pretty it up, you know, put a silver lining on it, pretend that everything is fine when everything isn't fine. Um, if it's not, um, if you're having an awesome and great day, can you also stand in the authentic truth of that? Like if you come across someone and it's like, they ask you how you are. Sometimes I feel like our culture promotes us to be complaining um, either to say, oh, everything's fine, or to talk about, oh, I'm so busy, and I'm so this, that, the other, and that we shy away from saying when things are great. And so, you know, I think yeah. being authentic is just being exactly who you are in the moment. And if you're doing great, then to step into that. And if you're having a hard time, or, you know, to just kind of say, you know, I'm having a hard day today, or like, I'm doing pretty good, but feeling a little off, or whatever that might be. Um, yeah, so I would say authenticity is is standing in the truth and the light of who you are at any given moment. Um, and I also want to say that authenticity is a practice. Okay, so it's an action that we're doing. I think it's an action that we're doing because we may have, um, just like we talked about with shame and having different shame triggers that might come from different environments or different people, situations, I think that can be true with authenticity, right? That we maybe can feel our most authentic selves, hopefully with a partner, if we have a partner, mm-hmm. um, hopefully with our very best friend, we can feel authentic and be exactly who we are in the moment. But maybe there are some other people that it's really hard to be authentic with that maybe um, a family member who might be critical or that you have some negative history with feels very hard to be yourself with that person. Or maybe depending on the work you do, if you're not maybe in alignment um, with yourself and your job, it could feel very hard to be authentically who you are in the work setting. And so I think that's what I mean by it's a practice that how do we move into being more of our whole selves, our authentic, true selves in every situation, I think is, is definitely a practice. That's really interesting. It's interesting that you highlighted being able to share when things aren't going so well for us as being part of our experience of authenticity, but also when things are going well, because Mm -hmm. I think you're right. There are these cultural norms around how much we share. And I do gather it's in trusted relationships is the first Mm -hmm. place for us to practice the showing up fully, but that sharing our joys and how delighted we might be in a moment might be just as hard to do for some people as Mm. sharing when things are really, really tough. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that these seem to be two opposite sides of the coin, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that 
articulating or making true when things are going really well can, can be scary in some ways because alongside that experience exists the fact that things can also change. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there might be a link between them and how that would fit into this, this you know, experience of, of daring greatly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's, they all fit that showing the highlights can be scary for some and showing the lowlights, you know, can be scary. And so I think that, you know, one of Brene's kind of lines is that, you know, to, that we need to work towards, you know, showing up, being seen and living brave that's Brene's words, not mine. So yeah. to show up, be seen and live brave. And that's kind of, um, kind of her mantra about authenticity and living authentic- authentically. You know, how do we allow ourselves to show up fully as who we are, allow ourselves to be seen for who we are, fully who we are, and to like live brave, you know, doing that to show up and let ourselves be seen is absolutely living brave. And so in some circles, that might be hard, you know, if you're with people who might be a bit of Debbie Downers, or you're with people who, you know, we all might have a friend who often is happiest when they're complaining. (laughs) We might all know someone like that. And so it might feel really hard if you're, if things are going really well for you, it might feel really hard to step into that authentic place of like, things are really going great with me. My partner and I are doing better. You know, work is going well. You know, I'm feeling really alive and vibrant in my body. It might be really hard to share with that person. Um, as much as, you know, with other people, we can feel socialized that like we have to have our game face on and everything needs to be just fine, quote unquote, you know, and we can't say that we're struggling and having a hard time. So I feel like, yes, they are two sides of the same coin, but to look at, there might be ways that we're triggered or have a hard time to fully show up, to fully let ourselves be seen. And I think that takes, takes being brave. That's yeah. the root of it all. Yeah. So being able to be brave and perhaps when we share, when we're vulnerable, it mm-hmm. might elicit a different connection, a different response from someone we have a pre-existing condition, uh, condition with, connection with. <laughs> connection, um, yeah. <laughs> it could be conditioned depending on the situation. But, but also I wonder if this kind of highlights too how important it is to form relationships where we can be vulnerable and relationships where we can show up fully both in the highlights and the lowlights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that really goes to um, how we seek connection and how we make community. And that, um, again, it doesn't, we don't need to have 10 to 20 best friends. We don't need to have, you know, a large circle. You know, I think that we're lucky if we can count our closest people on one hand. But I think to really, um, put the time and effort and trust building from both sides to develop those meaningful connections where we have earned the right to hear our friend's story or our family's story as much as they have heard the right to hear ours. And, and that takes time. That takes trust building um, over small moments over time, you know, that might not be the big grand moments that come, but that we build those trusting relationships where we can show up just as we are in any given situation. And so just wanting to um, really remind listeners that 
that being able to do that might not be possible in every single relationship that we have, that being authentically completely who we are, you know, to take care of yourself, to not throw yourself in overly vulnerable situations with people who don't deserve the right to see you showing up as who you are. Okay. Okay. So that's an important point that we can have a small but amazing group of supports and people where we can connect. Mm -hmm. And there may or may not be people who might not be as appropriate for us to share with, but we work on cultivating those connections where we feel safe and where someone has that honor of letting us share our moments of shame of being truly vulnerable and thus forging that connection you know, more deeply every time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like in my life, for example, you know, I have, I have many friends who are very close with their moms and my relationship with my mother was not a positive one. And she um, would not have been a person that I would have trusted her to hold and be with me as my truly authentic self. And so she would not be someone that I would turn to if I was feeling shame and wanted to kind of reach out to someone and speak shame to them and let them know what was happening. Um, I wouldn't seek her out as that, but I would look towards someone that I know has become a trusted friend over time. You know, one of my very best girlfriends who has demonstrated to me that she shows up when I need her, someone who has confided in me as well over time. And so looking to cultivate that type of authenticity and connection with someone like that versus someone who has shown to me in my life that she can't show up in that way. Okay. That's a really important point too, is that it's going to be different people for everyone. You know, it might be a family member, it might be a friend and it might change perhaps through time, or it might be that some relationships, they, they last a duration. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the way that we, you know, practice shame resilience then is we notice our shame triggers, perhaps it's physical sensations in the body, perhaps it's specific thought patterns. And then we notice how we respond to the shame that we might have this, um, you know, I guess, trend to, or in a specific situation, we might move against the shame, kind of go into that attack mode. We might Mm -hmm. move towards it, go into our people-pleasing mode. We might move away from it and try and hide and curl up. And then once we notice what we're doing, our next step is then to accept the experience and to reach out and to connect with a safe person to share with them what's going on in that moment. Absolutely. You got it. That's so that's amazing because shame is something we all experience. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious about then where we go from here because it's you know this concept it's come up a few times in this conversation around courage. You know mm. what are we what are we building in this practice of shame resilience? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one I think the first thing is really about healing ourselves. You know, that looking at our own lived experiences, seeing where we feel shame, coming to terms with that, developing resilience and ways to deal with triggers that will will keep coming to us in different forms and fashions over the course of our life, that those shame triggers aren't going to go away. But what we're developing is really a capacity to manage and take care of ourselves when we feel shame. Um, And then what I think we do is that in us cultivating that awareness and that healing within ourselves, I feel like that that then ripples out. I think it ripples out when we reach out to people, when we're struggling ourselves um, and needing to reach out for support. But I also think then what happens is we become support people 
for other people to reach out to us when they speak shame. It helps them have a role model to acknowledge these parts of themselves that maybe they haven't seen. And then I think that keeps having a ripple effect out to all the connections that we make. You know, even though there are 7 billion of us on the planet, we are far more connected to one another than we are separate. And so I think that, I mean, I think that's the point of all, of all healing and all therapeutic work is that, you know, once we have our oxygen mask on first, once we're doing well, once we take care of ourselves, then that flows out to every person that we come in contact with and who we have connections with. And hopefully then that keeps the ripple effect to keep on going. That's really beautiful. This vision of how when we're taking care of ourselves and taking care of ourselves here doesn't mean that we're perfect and that everything's going well. Instead, it's honoring that imperfection and the difficult Mm -hmm. experiences we have in a manner that serves to connect us rather than isolate us and in allowing ourself the gift of showing up more fully that Mm -hmm. empowers others to show up more fully themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, if we can take that courageous step, that brave step, then that maybe encourages and like you said, empowers others to do the exact same. And imagine if we all were doing that, right? If if we all were stepping up and being our authentic selves and reaching out with compassion and connection to people, I just think that that could change the world. You know, that might sound trite or overstepping, but I do think that that's how it happens. You know, that if we could step out of this proving this, you know, proving what may mean being that perfection thing, making, you know, trying to show we're good enough or whatever, rather than just being ourselves, wouldn't that bring so much healing to each of us as individuals and then heal our communities and heal our relations with other countries, with other people, just, it could be so, such a powerful, powerful experience. That's incredibly powerful. And, you know, motivating that you go to the higher levels, you know, even what's happening between countries, you know, Mm -hmm. between different cultures, but that it starts from this work with ourself. And you originally described the difference between shame and guilt and how shame is associated with such negative outcomes for ourselves, you know, in regards Mm -hmm. to our mental health, that it's associated with increased experiences of depression, anxiety, you know, Mm -hmm. eating disorders, addictions, that if we can be, you know, brave enough to, to share our shame, to be vulnerable, that we bring it out into the light, that it then allows us to heal so that those experiences, you know, those things that we might label as mental illness can be healed, can Mm -hmm. see the light. And then it sort of flows on, you know, we're healing ourselves, we're healing our communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's the the very um, essence of the work, you know, that it starts with us first and then permeates out. What a beautiful message. So I'm wondering what we could share with the listeners as a bit of a takeaway, something that they might be able to practice in in their own lives. You know, we have talked through the steps of how Mm -hmm. to build shame resilience. I don't know whether summarizing them is going to be the next best action Mm -hmm. or if you have something else that you would suggest. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a great, a great um, question. You know, one, I mean, I think we've talked about the steps and and people can, can certainly practice those. And one, it might be just to even think about your circle of people in your life and to think about, um, do you have one or two really trusted people in your life that you could be your authentic self with, that you could at least even start to, um, 
talk with them in ways that might be more um, whole, wholly centered of who you are, you know, and just to think of, do you have one or like thinking of your connections or your community and that if you have one or two that feel like mm, maybe I have kind of connections with them like that, or I haven't talked with them on a deep level, maybe start practicing um, deeper types of conversations with them when, than when you meet, you know, you can, you can start to alter a conversation and move it from maybe a more superficial, you know, kind of surface conversation. Could you start to practice even deepening the conversations? You know, you don't have to go to the deepest end right away, but just to, just to step, step your toe a little further into the pool and like, you know, start to wade into those authentic waters a little bit more. But And so maybe those are two steps to one, think about who's in your circle that you could trust Um, could be step one. And step two is how, how could you start um, talking and sharing with those one or two people in ways that might feel more deeper or more authentic to yourself when you do connect with them. So that might be two different steps. Mm -hmm. I like it because it flows on. So people can have a think. They can be thinking right now as we're wrapping up the podcast. And then it's going to be that next step of going out and actually having a coffee, starting the conversation, Mm -hmm. making a phone call, and starting to explore what it's like to share a little bit more and to cultivate, you know, little by little that perhaps enhance depth to the relationship. (laughs) Exactly. And then if you practice that, then when you are in a tough spot and you're feeling shame or, you know, feeling like you're in a dark place, you know that you have cultivated a deeper, richer relationship with this one or two people that were having you practice with. And then you know that when you need a lifeline that you have someone to call that you've established a deeper relationship with. So it doesn't seem like that much scarier because you know, you have some trust built up. I like that you use the word practice too, that this isn't mm-hmm. something that comes easy, this, no. <laughs> this opening ourselves up, this sharing the things that society has instructed us are, you know, the, the darkest places in our being to, to share that with someone is going to take practice and giving oneself the space to go slow mm-hmm. to build it so that when they are in a tougher place, they are more easily able to reach out mm-hmm. and to form that connection because you highlighted how important connection is yeah. and that you know, individuals, the people we trust are our lifelines in really difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. It's all practice. All of this work is practice. Vulnerability is a practice. Authenticity is a practice. Reaching out is a practice. You know, it's all yoga off the mat as far as I'm concerned. I think that's a fantastic (laughs) way to summarize it, that it's all action. It's all practice. There is no perfect to any of us. Mm -hmm. We'll all have our slips. We'll ebb and we'll flow and we'll find our way back to practice again and again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Megan. And so that people can reach out and, you know, connect with you. You are on Instagram and face, um, Facebook at Love Warrior Healing, as well as at Megan Davidson. And there you share all sorts of beautiful, honest truths. Mm-hmm. So I think individuals listening who are resonating with this conversation will enjoy hearing, hearing more from you. And perhaps if they um, make it to your neck of the woods, participating in one of the daring way groups that you run with you individually for therapy or coaching or, Mm -hmm. you know, just a chance to share your insights. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you so much, Caitlin. And I'd love to hear from any listeners. If anyone has any questions or follow up, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from them. 
And I will be putting all of um, Megan's contact details in the show notes. So you can link there and you'll be able to very easily reach out and, and connect. <laughs> That's right. That's great. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for this conversation. It's been awesome to speak with you today and um, excited for the listeners to hear our conversation. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you found this interview with Megan relevant to your life and specifically to your emotional experience and the trouble that all of us really have around shame. Do you think perhaps you could schedule some time now reflecting on your own shame triggers and how you might make some moves to cultivate your own shame resilience? And again, if you haven't already, head back, check out episode five, Megan's first episode. I think you'll find that these two episodes fit really brilliantly together. So I mentioned in the intro that next week I'll be offering a masterclass on mindful self-compassion. So I started out by offering this masterclass on Facebook Live with a presentation so those of you who are a bit more visual would have something to follow along with. I've received a little bit of feedback that it might actually be nice if I could give you a heads up as to when I offer these masterclasses so that you can participate in real time. So what I've decided to do is to actually schedule a time where I'll offer that live. I'll obviously record the live because it will be next week's podcast episode. In order to know when I will offer that live, please sign up to our mailing list. You can head to wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com and then I'll let you know when we formally scheduled the masterclass time. Also, if you are enjoying these episodes, it would be absolutely amazing if you could take two seconds to give us a review. If you're on iTunes, just double click the podcast image and then click on reviews where you can give a number of stars and write a bit about what you're finding helpful in these episodes. I am so looking forward to seeing you here next week or perhaps maybe on Facebook Live. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.